Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Kenny Novis, a DPhil candidate at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about Kenny's podcasting experience with Zero and Repeater Books, his research on Marxism, as well as his research on Spinoza. If you'd like to get in touch with Kenny, you can reach him via email at kenneth.novis at gmail.com or on Twitter at at Savicious. Kenny Novis, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thanks for having me on. Been a, been a big fan of the show for a while now. Glad to hear it. Well, like us, you are also a fellow podcaster, aren't you? So tell us a bit about your <laughs> podcast. It's nothing big. There is a British publisher over here called uh, Zero and Repeater Books. And just a little while back, you know, some people from them got in touch and I've been working with them since, mostly just getting authors that they've published onto the show and, you know, other people who write books and things like that, that, you know, might seem to fit in well with the audience that we have. What kind of books do they publish? What kind of stuff do you talk about? Yeah. So the kind of motto of Zero and Repeater Books is intellectual, but not academic. And that's kind of what we gear for with a lot of it. The current head of the label, Tariq Goddard, is kind of an old school punk. So he brings a lot of this DIY mentality to the way the whole label is run. But as far as what we publish goes, it's mostly kind of philosophy, politics, bit of economics, a lot of history. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting. because I think I've read a few books on there, um, or sort of skimmed a few, if I'm being entirely honest. So they all seem super interesting. I think actually one by someone in our Oxford DPhil cohort, Matt Rosen, called Speculationalism. Oh, wow. So this is like a little little plug for him. He's not even on the episode, but <laughs> we'll help promote it. I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how did you get involved with Zero and Repeater books? How did you get on the radar of the people who run this? To be perfectly honest, a part of it comes down to just being far more active than I ought to be in online leftist and academic spaces. Although for what it's worth, I think one of the best things that we as philosophers have cultivated kind of in the age of parasocial relationships and internet communities is these things that Helen Cruz talks about as philosophy whisper networks. Hmm. You know, with all of these problems that we hear a lot about in philosophy, uh, things like sexual harassment or just other kinds of mistreatment. I feel like having these kinds of informal networks between philosophers and even just between you know junior researchers like us, where people can speak honestly about you know maybe the more personal side of things that becomes important when you're working with someone in a very close capacity like you are at the PhD level. I think these can be particularly important. Sorry, that's quite a large tangent, but that's just to say that through being perhaps overly active in this, I made some really good friends who also shared kind of an interest in Spinoza and Deleuze and critical theory. And it was at the same time that they were closing some deals with Zero and Repeater Books, and they brought me over onto the show. Ah, sounds like a great opportunity. Yeah, the Whisper Networks you're talking about, we, we actually spoke about those on, a, on another episode as well. The benefits, but also the limits of Whisper Networks with Mary Peterson in the context of, Very the good of sexual of mine. harassment in academia. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm away, you know, Mary, and you also work on um, similar kinds of areas of research, right, with Spinoza which we'll come on to talk about a little bit more later on. But for now, I wanted to ask about the podcast. 
I'm sure I've mentioned on a previous episode that I used to host a different podcast where I was the only host and the episodes were more scripted in format. It was a lot of work and I definitely couldn't have carried on doing that during the PhD. I find Kyle and I, we, we managed to manage this pretty well between ourselves and it, it helps having an an interview-based format where, you know, you guys bring the knowledge and we just get to ask you about it. How do you find that kind of things doing the podcast while now beginning your PhD this year? Do you find it manageable or is it quite a lot to take on on top of your studies? I've definitely had to ramp it back a bit. Mm. The way that we've normally handled it in the past is because most of the authors that we have on are people who published with our label, we kind of consider it good form to read through the books beforehand. Uh, and because I don't have much time for that kind of reading anymore, <laughs> I've, had, I've been able to take on fewer. But the few that I am still able to take on, it's always a lot of fun having that kind of as an opportunity to read outside of my regular research areas. Yeah, I think we would probably struggle if all of our guests had published a monograph that we were going to read prior to each episode. Fortunately, being PhD students, uh, that's not the norm, but also there, there have been exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> The content of the uh, the episodes then, uh, the philosophical and the political on um, on the Zero and Repeater Books podcast, I think often have a bit of a Marxist bent. Is this right? One of the two original founders of the label, uh, Mark Fisher, is a very well-known contemporary critical theorist. Uh, he wrote this book called Capitalist Realism, which is sometimes mistaken for coining the line, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, <laughs> which is kind of a commentary on you know, kind of the apocalyptic imaginary and cinema and other kinds of media. And Mark Fisher taught at Goldsmiths for a long time. Fantastic, you know, Marxist theorist in his own right. But yeah, I think Tariq as well is certainly somewhere in that region. <laughs> How did you sort of get inspired by Marxism? I, I feel like every philosopher at some point when they're young reads the Communist Manifesto uh, then some people stick to it quite rigidly. Others kind of go quite moderate. Others turn to the complete other direction. What sort of sparked that interest for you? Well, there's this old joke that when you're a 12 year old, there's one book you read that determines what your politics will be for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, for some people, it's like Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, other people like Plato's Republic, maybe Nicola Machiavelli's The Prince. I remember when I was 12, I was uh, studying at a grammar school down in Berkshire. And we were looking at the history of the Cold War. And I don't think the teacher was trying to indoctrinate anyone. But just as a kind of introduction to it, he was saying, like, this is what the people on one side believed. This is what the people on the other believed. And I remember hearing this notion that, you know, changes in society, the kinds of relations between people are best understood through things like the material and economic circumstances. And I remember sitting there in that class and thinking that makes a lot of sense to me. And with kind of the solution that was proposed to it, that the way to fix a lot of the problems that ail people socially is to have a serious look at the kinds of economic relations that hold between people. I feel I had a, a similar experience around about the same age, but for me, the philosophical idea wasn't Marxism, it happened to be consequentialism. And since that 12 or 13 year old Lewis heard that discussed fairly ambivalently in a religious studies class, it's still something that permeates my research to this day. Is this still something oh, what that... was the book? Oh, no, no, it wasn't a book. It was, um, it was just in a class. The teacher taught us a little bit about, he just went on a, a riff on a tangent for about five minutes. I think he did an example about, oh, this drug dealer, you could 
kill him and it would make 20 people happy because they're no longer being supplied drugs. All very 12, 13 year old friendly. And I was like, oh, cool. This cause and effect way of thinking about it is really interesting. <laughs> and here we are. But yeah, th- this is still something that, that I'm interested in my research. Does Marxism come into your academic research as well? Or is this something that's uh, squarely a side project for you with the, with the podcast? Uh, so yeah, I think as you're on the road to becoming an academic, there's the strong temptation that I think everyone feels to try and find a way of making all of your various interests fit together and kind of intersect. And the person I mostly work on for the sake of my PhD is the 17th century Dutch philosopher, Baruch Spinoza or Benedict Spinoza. And one of the things for which he's best known, he was Jewish and partly because of his you know, radically unorthodox views at the time, uh, he was expelled from the synagogue in Amsterdam, in The Hague. And there's this incredible document that you can still find of Spinoza's harem, or the writ that was drawn up against him by the synagogue. And the wording of it is incredibly strong. I think it says something like, cursed be he by day, cursed be he by night, cursed be he when he stands up, cursed be he when he sits down, and things like this. So Spinoza has always had kind of this reputation for being some kind of radical, although while he was alive, it was mostly for being some kind of religious radical rather than a political radical. Although Mm. something else that's interesting about his thought, and that might be indicated by the title of one of his very few works that he published during his lifetime, the Tractatus Theologico Politicus, the Treatise on Theology and Politics, is this point that for him, questions of religion or theology and questions of politics are extremely intermixed. And this touches on, or more directly on, kind of how I work on him now. There's a very significant contemporary historian of the Enlightenment called Jonathan Israel. Uh, He writes these gigantic books called Radical Enlightenment. There are like four of them now, and each of them is like verging on a thousand pages. (laughs) (laughs) And he tries to motivate this point that... However, it is that we talk about things like freedom and equality as political values today. Uh, Jonathan Israel thinks that our specific way of talking about them is brought down to us directly from Spinoza's writings, especially as uh, ultimately they were picked up and read in France and Germany. And there's been a lot of interest in how Spinoza was studied in Germany, for example, with like Yitzhak Melamed and Eckhart Forster. There's been extraordinarily little especially among philosophers, into how he was read in France, Mm -hmm. um, which is astonishing in its own way, but not to get too far afield of the question that you asked. (laughs) Um, The relation between this and kind of the interest in Marxism is this. Marx and Engels wrote this book together called The Holy Family, which has one of the best and worst subtitles of all time, The Critique of Critical Critique. (laughs) (laughs) And in this, they try to tell the story of the history of what they call critical critique. And there's this point that Marx and Engels make in one of the chapters where they say uh, French materialism was founded as a a rebellion against the abstract metaphysics of the 17th century, especially Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. And, you know, Marx and Engels go on to say they think that 18th century French materialism is also kind of the political milieu that gave birth to their own political ideas of socialism. And it's especially striking because if you look at just about any of the radical French materialists they're talking about, they pretty much all called themselves Spinozists. Mm. So it's partly this that I want to look at closely and correct. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's a lot to unpack there before we get into the specific details of your doctoral research. But could you give us a flavor for the sorts of things that Spinoza is saying qua sort of political philosopher, philosopher of religion, and I guess how you suggested these two are really connected in his work? I suppose for some, you know, for a lot of people who might not know much about Spinoza's work and the very few texts that he authored, right? There's the the Tractatus Theological Politicus, right? If I said that right. Yeah. And then there's like the ethics, right? And I think that's, that's basically it, right? There were a few things. It's if we're looking at kind of early modern philosophy, we're also looking at a period of extraordinary state censorship. So he only published two things under his own name, or only published one thing under his own name in his lifetime. And that was the principles of Cartesian philosophy, although it did have an appendix called the Cogitata Metaphysica or the metaphysical thoughts, which is seen by some as kind of him giving the game away. And it was partly used to track the authorship of his other anonymously published works. But, you know, as well as the principles of Cartesian philosophy, the ethics, the Tractatus Theologico Politicus, there are also things like the treaties on the emendation of the intellect, this very almost classically Cartesian text that starts from this question of, or it starts from this almost existential concern of a young man finding himself disillusioned with the fleeting things of the world and seeking out the good and lasting things in life and resolving that he will discover them through the use of reason and the pursuit of intellectual goods. Wow. Okay. So yes, a lot to learn about Spinoza, surely. <laughs> and with regard to to the aspects that you're uh, looking at, what is so heretical about what Spinoza was talking about at that time? What are sort of like, I don't know, the two or three sort of like key ideas that have inspired you and many people to look at his work in this way? Yeah. There's a French Spinoza scholar by whose work I'm quite inspired. I believe he actually died recently called André Tozel, who wrote this book called Spinoza et le crépuscule de la servitude, or Spinoza and the Twilight of Servitude. It's a great title. And there's a chapter in it called L'Operation de la Siwe, or The Operation of the Siwe. Siwe is this uh, Latin term that Spinoza uses a lot. It can be translated as or, or it can be translated as that is. And he uses it at this critical point uh, in a lot of his arguments. So one of the things that people most know him for is this phrase in Latin, Deus siwe natura, God or nature, or God that is nature, which sometimes leads people to attribute to him kind of a radical naturalist view that even Hobbes was scared of voicing at this time. There's a letter from Hobbes where he describes his reading of Spinoza's treatise on theology and politics, and he says, I durst not say it so bravely. Wow. Um, so <laughs> even Hobbes... <laughs> Even Hobbes was intimidated by uh, how forthrightly naturalist Spinoza appeared to many to be. But he also uses this seaway, this that is, to link together a bunch of other terms that wouldn't intuitively seem to go together, but which he kind of argues for and uses a, as a way of uh, upheaving the whole kind of conceptual apparatus that we have in a bunch of different disciplines. The next one that he's possibly best well known for is jus seaway potentia, or right, that is power to say that all of this talk that we ordinarily have about the kinds of rights that things have. He was still working within the early modern tradition of natural rights. Spinoza really wants to say that within a strictly deterministic universe, what makes the most sense is to say that a thing has the right simply to whatever it does and whatever happens to it, which might seem a bit fatalistic. And maybe there's a reason why 
the Spinozists in the 18th century were also called the Fatalists. Uh, one of uh, Diderot's most famous books, Jacques le Fataliste, is about this quizzical servant who follows his master around called Jacques le Fataliste. And he gets into all of these, you know, fun little philosophical and social scenarios with his master as well. Well, despite being such a radical philosopher who, as you've said, has had all of these different influences in subsequent philosophy, including, uh, I think this was news to at least me, perhaps to Kyle as well, that the influence on Marx. You mentioned that surprisingly little has been written about his influence on pre-revolutionary France, which I think is really the scope of, of your thesis. That's the angle of Spinoza research that, that you're taking. Why is that the case? Why has so little been written about the reception of Spinoza then, especially given, you know, how he was received in his time, how he was received quite quite negatively by so many? He was a real, really controversial scholar. Why then has so little been written about his reception in France prior to the revolution? What, what's going on there? So I should add a caveat here, which is that in some disciplines, this has been written about a lot. If you look at history, it's been one of the main topics of conversation within Enlightenment studies, you know, since about the middle of the 20th century. But it's specifically within philosophy that so extraordinarily little has been written about it. I guess, fortunately for me, usually when the decision is made not to talk about Spinoza in 18th century France, people will usually say their reason as well. So Pierre-Francois Moreau, who is you know, possibly the most esteemed current Spinoza scholar in France, kind of comes to the conclusion that among the French materialists, none of them had actually read Spinoza, that they kind of had at best secondhand knowledge of him. And this is kind of repeated in a very recent book about Spinoza as well, Richard Bernstein's The Vicissitudes of Nature from Spinoza to Freud. And it starts off by telling this very familiar story that, you know, Spinoza died in the 1670s, and his works were forgotten for about 100 years, and then he was rediscovered triumphantly by Kant and the German idealists. But it seems to me that this is, in a way, almost radically false, that it would be hard to find a single philosopher with whom French philosophers across the 18th century were so obsessed and fascinated as with Spinoza. So I think a part of it really comes down to thinking that either the French materialists just had nothing to say interesting about Spinoza, that everything they had to say about him had already been said by others, or that they just hadn't read him, and that anything they had to say about him was based on ignorance. Hmm. So one of the ways in which Spinoza was so controversial in his time was on his religious statements. And you've spoken a little bit about that already. But I gather that this ambiguity about exactly what Spinoza's position was on religion, in particular, was he or was he not an atheist? I think this is what the chapter that you're currently working on is discussing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you very much for plugging that. <laughs> so there is this ongoing and extremely incendiary debate within Spinoza studies over what Spinoza's personal religious beliefs actually were. On the one hand, you have like uh, Steve Nadler at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is an extremely capable Spinoza scholar in his own right. But one of the things for which he's most notorious among Spinoza scholars is that he's one of the few people who still defends the thesis that Spinoza was actually an atheist. I mean, there are a few other people who defend this as well, like Gianluca Mori, with an extremely unpopular view at the moment. And part of why it seems to be so unpopular is because of the success of uh, other Spinoza scholars like Yitzhak Melamed. And a big part of Melamed's research is saying that 
all of these things which were thought to be heretical in Spinoza's thought, like the identification of God and nature, or challenging the credence that we ought to afford to, uh, say, testimonies about miracles, right? Melamed kind of takes a close look at the Jewish intellectual tradition, kind of including Garsonides and Maimonides, and he finds that a lot of these things that Spinoza was saying uh, were far from unheard of in the history of Jewish thought. And in fact, in certain circles, they would have been outright orthodox. As far as my current chapter goes, whether or not Spinoza was an atheist, it seems like it's still possible to make him say something interesting on the role of atheists in society. At the end of the 17th century, this massive debate was kicked off by the French Huygenot philosopher Pierre Bayle, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the virtuous atheism debate. And it's centered around this question. Is it possible for someone to disbelieve in God and be a good person? I hope to be living testimony of that, if I'm being honest. But... <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? And Bale takes it even further, because when he first articulates this problem in his uh, various thoughts on the occasion of a comet, he asks uh, whether a society of atheists is conceivable, or whether once you get enough atheists in a room, they would just start fighting each other, and whatever kind of social relation is between them would just collapse. Hmm. But within the virtuous atheism debate, Spinoza's referred to constantly. And it's kind of curious to me that the question of whether or not Spinoza was an atheist, what he politically made of atheists, has been little addressed. There's an article on it by Michael Rosenthal, which is just called Why Spinoza is Intolerant of Atheists. But I'm not entirely sure I agree with the conclusion of it. And in fact, I think that if you look really closely at his treatise on theology and politics, the way that he talks about the relation between God, religion, and morality, welcomes these kinds of uh, clandestine reading strategies that anyone who works on the Enlightenment will be familiar with. Because, of course, whenever he talks about God, he's in a sense also talking about nature and so on. So we really need to look closely at what he says, how he says it. And I think when we do so, we find in surprising ways that he does think it's possible to be an atheist and a good person. Maybe that's not so surprising today, but in his time it was. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Novis, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.